Hello and welcome again to Evangelion, interpreting scripture and life. It's been a bit of a journey, hasn't it, through Galatians, and we come to the final segment of text. Um, so it's not time to take our feet off the pedal quite yet, because Paul packs an awful lot into this very last section of the letter. We'll probably have a wrap-up session uh, still to go, just to consolidate all the ideas. But let's think our way through Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Now, as Geoffrey Weymer has argued, the final sections of ancient letters, like Galatians, don't merely follow usual conventions. They're often very carefully constructed units which relate directly to and often even summarise the major concerns and themes of the letter. And that's certainly true in this case. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, the Greek verb translated crucify, stauroo, appears four times in Galatians, in 2.19, 3.1, and in 6.14, and only in its occurrence in 3.1 is it actually a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. As we've noticed, um, it's Paul himself who's crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.19. The Galatian Gentiles suffer crucifixion with Christ in 5.24, paving the way for life on the basis of spirit. The final crucifixion in Galatians comes here in chapter 6, verse 14. Indeed, in this first, uh, Paul notes a two-way crucifixion. The cosmos itself crucified to Paul and Paul crucified to the cosmos. Then verse 15 becomes critical for two reasons. Firstly, it suggests that a new creation has emerged from this crucified cosmos. And secondly, it reverses the defunct polarity of circumcision and uncircumcision, which was raised earlier in 5.6. In both texts, we're told that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. So what does Paul mean when he says that the world has been crucified and what is this new creation and how do these verses bring the argument to an end? Well, These are amongst the questions that we'll address in this final section of the letter. So let's read Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Paul writes, See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither uncircumcision nor circumcision are anything but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. We've already noted that Paul is probably not physically writing most of the letter. Typically, ancient letter writers had scribes. The technical term for a scribe is an amanuensis. Paul's amanuensis is named in Romans. He's called Tertius, we're told, in Romans 16, verse 22. And there's some degree of scholarly debate regarding the degree of input that a scribe would have on the letter. As is Paul's custom, his distinguishing mark in his letters is to grab the quill from his scribe at the end and sign off the letter in his own hand. The large letters with which Paul signed off seem to be a trademark. 
Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul's eyesight may have been compromised, either as a result of the numerous beatings he suffered or possibly of the blinding light on the Damascus Road. But that might explain why he wrote in such large letters, basically because his eyesight was failing. That does remain, of course, in the realm of speculation. But for now, we might note that Paul instructs his readers to identify an authentic correspondence from Paul by these large letters. It's probably not coincidence that, in, that Paul makes the point explicitly in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 17. Because in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Paul had warned believers not to be shaken or disturbed by any letter claiming that the day of Christ had already come. Perhaps there were false epistles claiming to be written from the hand of Paul, which were being used in support of heretical ideas, which naturally would not have his distinguishing mark at the end. The first theme to which Paul returns in Galatians 6, 11 through 18, of course, is, unsurprisingly, circumcision. Verse 12 echoes chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul raised the question of why he was still being persecuted if he was be, uh, preaching circumcision, arguing that if he was preaching circumcision, that the scandal of the cross would somehow disappear. Clearly, there was some tension between preaching the cross of Christ and preaching circumcision. Preaching the cross would lead to persecution, and yet preaching circumcision would somehow put one in good standing with local synagogues and indeed with Christian Jews. Christian Jews knew the importance of Jesus' death, but for unbelieving Jews, we already know what it meant that someone was impaled to a tree. Just think back to Galatians 3.13 and the quotation from Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The Greek behind the phrase, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, implies something along the lines of those who want to show good face. Again, we ought to see an echo here to an earlier text. You may remember in Galatians 2.6 where Paul made light of the leadership hierarchy in Jerusalem on the basis that God does not play favourites. The Greek lying behind the term God does not play favourites is the idiom that God does not receive the face of a man. These expressions using the word for face imply something like showing off or trying to make a good public appearance, perhaps play acting or being hypocritical. Perhaps this is why when Paul challenged Peter at Antioch at the mixed fellowship meal that he used the precise expression, I opposed him to his face. Perhaps Peter's actions there were a form of making good appearances or play acting. Indeed, in that passage, much like in 6.14, it was the attempt to look good in front of Jews that Paul took issue with. It's also interesting that the actual charge that Paul made against Peter in Antioch was trying to compel Gentiles to live like Jews. He uses exactly the same word for compel in reference to those Jews who try to compel Gentiles to be circumcised in Galatians 6.12, and there, of course, it's to placate the synagogue and to avoid persecution for preaching the cross. Clearly, Paul wants his readers to see a connection between the behaviour of these Jews and Peter's behaviour in Antioch. As we've argued from the very outset, this is an explosive, challenging and ruthlessly honest letter where the writer will pull no punches. And the hypocrisy of these champions of circumcision is made even more explicit in chapter 6.13. For Paul claims that this contingent demanding circumcision of Gentiles are themselves guilty of failing to keep the law. 
Perhaps Paul has in mind his assertion in Galatians 5.14 that love for one's neighbour is the outworking of the law. If these people championing circumcision were true law keepers, then their actions would exhibit love and not social pressure or coercion. The apostles not even persuaded that his opponents' demands for Gentile circumcision were grounded in the law. Rather, they were grounded in the desire to, quote, boast in your flesh. It seems that Paul's opponents wanted to impress the local synagogues by showing that they could convert Gentiles to Judaism. Helping pagans to turn to God, of course, is a laudable endeavour. Even in our own context, as much as in the first century context of proselytism, that is, converting Gentiles to the God of Israel. But if such ministry efforts have a self-aggrandizing agenda or a desire to convert people, to sort of show your skill at converting, rather than a demonstration of love for God, then surely it's anathema. So once more, Paul is very explicit. He will make no such boasts. He's not going to boast in the fact that he can convert Gentiles. Indeed, throughout Paul's letters, he laments boasting. He won't boast of any of his successes, not even his missionary successes. He writes in 1 Corinthians 4 that neither the one who plants the word nor the one who waters the word uh, is entitled to any glory. The only glory belongs to God, who makes things grow. In Galatians 6.14, the one thing Paul will boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ, and he has a very specific reason for doing so. For Paul, the crucifixion of Jesus is to be understood in cosmic terms. The death of Jesus was, as many have noted, an apocalyptic event. That is to say, it revealed the truth about the world and caused a cosmic break in the normal running of world affairs. Let me quote to you from the late great John Louis Martin, writing here on Galatians 6.14. In this way, Paul refers to the cosmic event experienced by every member of the Galatian churches. They were all crucified with Christ. They all suffered the consequent loss of the world of religious differentiation. The crucifixion with Christ means the death of the cosmos of religion, the cosmos in which all human beings live. Swept away are the basic guidelines which, in one form or another, all people had formerly considered permanently dependable. End quote. For Martin, and I basically agree, these guidelines involve the sorts of polarity that separates human beings, namely things like ethnicity, gender, and social class. These had been shattered because of the crucifixion. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that these differentiations no longer exist nor exert any power. Of course, the use of the term crucify in 6.14 should be understood within the same contextual framework as 2.19 and 5.24. In both of those texts, a new life motif follows the crucifixion trope. And it's my understanding that Galatians 6.15 contains a new life motif. There, Paul speaks of new creation, and it follows a version of the same defunct polarity that Paul mentions in 5.6. Saying neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything makes a fairly unambiguous declaration. In the initial instance, it addresses the direct problem in Galatians. At no stage has Paul attempted to champion one ideal over the other. It's simply the case that whilst people create a hierarchy of ethnicities, this hierarchy has been shattered by the cross. Paul's not anti-circumcision, he's only against the imposition of circumcision on Gentiles for means of salvation. Secondly, however, and as is apparent 
from the verse in Colossians 3.11, which parallels Galatians 3.28, Paul clearly believes all ethnic domination dynamics to have been crucified with Christ. In Pauline thought, crucifixion with Christ is the crucifixion of identity itself. Finally, we ought to juxtapose Galatians 6.15 with the corresponding verse in Galatians 5.6. In Galatians 5.6, the circumcision-uncircumcision distinction is set aside for faith working through love. And as I explained in that podcast, I think it refers to Christ's love. In other words, because of Christ's loving sacrifice, our faith brings us into right relation with God. Well, the removal of that same circumcision-uncircumcision distinction in Galatians 6.15 is to pave the way for what Paul calls new creation. Now, if Paul's thinking is consistent here, then he sees a connection between new creation and faith working in the context of Christ's love. The connection shouldn't be difficult to comprehend. It's essential to this new world that God is creating that the bonds which make us family are not genetic bonds, but bonds of faith, which exist in the context of divine love. Only a love so immense, only a love that's divine, could accept human beings, irrespective of their ethnicity or their gender or social class, purely on the basis of trust, trust in the God that gives life. One rather troublesome term in Galatians 16 is the term Israel of God. Paul uses the conjunction and twice in the passage, and it's not clear because of that whether the Israel of God is the same group as the one ordering their steps by spirit or keeping in uh, step with this new rule, or a separate group altogether. In other words, is Paul making a dual function, in uh, a dual blessing in Galatians 6.16? He says, And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In other words, does he mean peace upon all those who walk by this rule and mercy upon the Israel of God? Or does he mean peace and mercy upon both of them? It's a bit of a mouthful, but if you read the text, it should be clear why there's a problem. If the Israel of God is a separate group, and there are those who believe it is, then it must be a reference to ethnic Israel. I would argue the opposite, however. I would argue, I think with the majority of the scholarship, that one blessing is in view. It's one blessing upon this entire group, this one group, the Israel of God, which should be understood as an inclusive term for this new spirit community and not a reference to ethnic Israel. I can't go into all the thorny details now, but let me at least outline my basic reasons for thinking this. Firstly, the term is unique. The term Israel of God doesn't appear anywhere else. This is the first mention of Israel in Galatians. At such a late stage of the argument, this must be seen as a deliberate piece of paradox. Secondly, given the argument of Galatians, to suddenly pronounce a a blessing on ethnic Israel seems implausible. Paul's entire argument the whole way through is that ethnicity as a way of separating and dividing people uh, is is ruled out because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so to suddenly express an explicit blessing on the ethnic group Israel, again, as I say, would seem implausible. Thirdly, Galatians 6, 14 through 15 seems to be both influenced 
by and modelled on Jeremiah 9:23 through 26, which also talks about the distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision. And there, Jeremiah explicitly eliminates the privilege of one group over another. It would be utterly contradictory for Paul to reintroduce that privilege by pronouncing a special blessing on the circumcised. Finally, we already know that Israel refers to the ethnic people. But to add to the phrase of God actually seems to intensify the exclusivity of the group. You know, if Israel is the circumcised, then the Israel of God, if it refers to Israel, doubly underscores the circumcised as God's people, which again seems to fly in the face of the argument of Galatians, where Paul's entire point is that God's people are not ethnically defined. The Israel of God, then, is a reference to the new community that orders its steps by spirit. Now, my use of the term orders its steps, um, or in fact, in the translation that I read to you, uh, it said those who will walk by this rule, um, actually brings to mind a verb that we've already seen. It's a verb that we met in Galatians 5.25. There, you'll recall Paul's assertion that those who live by the Spirit ought to, and I translated it, order their steps by the Spirit, or you could, I suppose, say walk by the Spirit. It's the verb stoicheo that we've talked about before. As such, the rule that Paul speaks of in Galatians 6.16 ought to be understood as the rule of the Spirit. The Spirit is now the guiding light and the principle of this new community. From here on in, Paul concludes in Galatians 6.17, no one should trouble him because he suffered for this truth that he tells. In the version I read to you, it says that he bears the brand marks of Christ. The Greek word is a word that's actually become a loan word in English, the word stigmata. Paul says he bears the stigmata of Christ, and the stigmata traditionally are the bruises and puncture wounds that Jesus suffered in the crucifixion. Paul himself, having been crucified with Christ and identifying with Christ and identifying with all the persecution that comes with preaching the cross of Christ, is already facing all kinds of trouble. And Galatians 6.17 is his way of saying, I don't need trouble from rival teachers. As I say, we'll do a wrap-up session to consolidate the ideas that emerge from this study of Galatians, but let me end by saying the following. Paul believed that a new unity, a new oneness, had been birthed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. This new unity would cut across all previous boundary markers, rendering them immaterial. As those uh, who are inheritors of this new unity, we as God's people, cannot, as Paul himself alludes to in Galatians 2.18, rebuild that which was torn down by the work of God. This for me is the key reason why any mechanism of domination, oppression or ostracizing power dynamics are patently anti-Christian. Racism, sexism, classism, hatred of people on the basis of their religious beliefs, philosophical commitments, sexual persuasion, gender identity or social status would be for Paul the highest form of heresy. Now whilst Paul would in no way simply embrace any old ideology or lifestyle or say that anything goes, he would absolutely oppose the hatred of any class of people. God's new world rules out any special privilege to an individual group. 
Indeed, in God's new world, there's a radical sense of it being counter-community, where those who benefit from, priv from privilege are now compelled by the Spirit to render such privilege null and void, and rather demand the very sacred oneness that is at the heart of all those who walk by this new rule of Spirit, and who are unified by this Spirit. And to echo Paul's words, it's upon these very people there may be indeed peace and mercy.